Welcome to the Intriguing Beings podcast with me, Rue Chater. Season 2, Episode 1. Well, for those of you that have missed me, I'm back. I've actually been recording a load of these over the last few months, but I did have a bit of a break, so I'm sorry if you've been expecting more episodes and haven't been getting them. I set myself a goal when I started putting these podcasts together of launching a new episode every Monday at around the same time. And what I didn't really factor in was that while I had the broken ankle and a little bit more time on my hands, as soon as I became a little bit more able to do things, life takes over and you get busy. So I was in South Africa, desperately trying to hit these deadlines and my life is just one big deadline when you look at it. I published two magazines, uh, every well every two months so we do 12 issues a year so kind of works out a magazine a month that's an incredible amount of work to put together and to get out there so to add the podcasts into that just made things a little bit stressful I also considered the fact that I really wanted these podcasts to be with interesting people and if I was pumping out one a week that's 52 a year and I don't know at what point I get to the the level where there are no more interesting people to chat to. I mean, I'm sure I'd never find that. But obviously, I didn't want to lower the standard of the podcast by speaking to people just for the sake of it, because I had a deadline to hit that week. So after I did the second one with Lewis Crathen about the Red Bull King of the Air, I just decided to take a bit of a break. I didn't even let you know I was taking a break, I don't think. I just went dark for a little bit. And I really enjoyed the chance to sit back and take stock and just have a little bit of a rest. Anyway, it didn't take long before I started recording the podcast again. And I started recording them in South Africa and have been recording them ever since. I've actually lost count of how many I've recorded now. Um, but what I'm struggling to do is find the time to actually edit them and put them together. But I've got some great episodes in the bank. People like Robbie Nash... Reuben Lenton, which you're about to hear, Aaron Hadlow, and many others that I've been chatting to over the last few months. This season, season two, I'm not going to be pumping them out every Monday at a certain time. My travel schedule is hectic, to say the least. I haven't actually been in the UK for the last six weeks, I don't think. And I've been on many different continents and countless flights traveling around uh, doing my day job. So my plan for this series is just to release them as and when they're ready. That means if I've got some time during the week, there might be a couple of episodes coming out. Or if life's a little bit stressful and we've got deadlines at work, you might not hear one for a couple of weeks. However, if you are a subscriber, you will always get the notification. So make sure you hit that subscribe button and then you'll be kept up to date of when they're coming out. Of course, I'll be sharing them on social media and putting them through all the usual channels, so you should get hold of them. But I really hope you enjoy this next series. And there's some great ones in there, so be sure to share them with friends. So this next episode is with Ruben Lenton. Ruben's one of the enigmas of the kiteboarding scene. He's an incredible rider who's changed the face of the sport as we know it. There aren't many people who've had that much influence on kiteboarding as Ruben and he's an incredibly talented young guy with a very switched on head. He's had his ups and downs throughout his career. In fact, I'd say ups and downs probably mark um, his career the most. He had a really bad injury um, when he was competing on the world tour, which caused him to take stock and change the way he looked at what he was doing in kiteboarding. He then obviously had his massive cancer scare which we talk about quite a lot in this interview and it's a really poignant moment and I was surprised by how open and honest Ruben was with his thoughts on the matter and how it's affected some of his family as well. Finally poor Ruben's just broken his ankle now we don't talk about that in the podcast but we do actually talk about my broken ankle because at the time I was still recovering and Ruben was blissfully unaware of the fate that was to befall him this year which was a really sad moment for me when I heard about it because sitting down with Ruben in South Africa and hearing about his plans for the season and everything that he had 
set up ready for this year to do it was a real shame to realize that he wasn't going to be able to fulfill a lot of those dreams however he's a very positive guy who's got the most amazing outlook on life and when i saw him at the kite surfing armada he was smiling happy partying had the same leg cast on that i had but i know he's going to be back on the water soon so i really hope you enjoy this episode it's a great insight into one of the legends of kiteboarding with reuben lenton so this afternoon, I am sat with uh, a very famous kiteboarder. He's one of the few people that I always say, when we put something up on our website, it attracts a lot of attention because people know the name, they know who he is, and they want to see what he's up to. And that is none other than Mr. Reuben Lenton. So welcome, Reuben. Um, first question for you. You've been kiteboarding since the very beginning almost it feels like and you've been competitive and achieved many things but how did you get into water sports what was your initial kind of injection into the the side of water sports and getting into the ocean and things like that yeah cheers Rube. Uh, great to have a chat with you and thanks for having me on um, I've indeed been kiteboarding for 18 years already so uh, I believe the sport has been around for 25 years I've been part of the past 18 so uh, I've seen quite a, a few bits and pieces of the sport and uh, yeah, I still love it every day. So um, I used to, uh, to live close by the beach, started flying power kites uh, when we were like eight years old, okay, 10 so years old with my friends always playing around. Uh, and eventually, yeah, we just saw this massive inflatable kite out on the water and that just inspired me to just take a look and it's like, wow, yep, that's what I want. And get involved did you have lessons when you first started because back then there wasn't really much around mm. or how was it in holland was it sort of a little bit more set up no i mean there were no schools at that time so it was uh, really watch and learn and uh, yeah. trial and error but uh yeah we we got through that phase pretty safe the equipment was uh, a two-line kite and a directional board and uh, trying to get up in the in the gusty winds but uh yeah it took me three to four months to learn yeah and uh, then i got up and got the hang of it then I got a four-line kite and uh, never looked back. You know, I started progressing, like jumping 360s and 720s in one session on that kite. So, uh, yeah, that just uh, sparked me up and, and set me up. And you were always quite competitive in the early days. Like, when did you sort of realize you wanted to start competing? Because the, 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 the scene in Holland is quite good. Like, you've got quite a good competition scene. And back then, there was quite a lot going on. And, you know, there's other riders like Kevin and Yulu and, you know, that you're sort of surrounded by a core group of people that are all fairly talented. When did you realize that, OK, I, I want to start competing and I want to go to events and start working on that side of things? Yeah, I mean, in Holland, the scene has been on fire since it picked up uh, in the early days, like 99. Um, and I was picked up by a, a coach um, called Steph, Steph de Jong. He was former Dutch champion. And I remember going to check out the, the Dutch National Championships in, in 2000. It was in Zandvoort. Yeah. So I went over there with my dad. And uh, Kevin was out there. He's my cousin, Kevin and Jalou. So we grew up in the same town. So we've always been, been uh, feeding each other energy and uh, battling off each other to get better. But uh, besides the National Championships, they actually organized a little rookie contest. Uh, so Kevin, um, myself, and another guy participated. I got second. And... Uh, yeah, at that event, I got speaking with uh, Whippica. They gave yeah. me a nice offer. But uh, at the same time, I got an offer from Slingshot. And um, yeah, that suited me much more. So yeah. uh, I went with that instead. And yeah, I just grew into the competition life pretty naturally. I think when you're young uh, and ambitious, you just, uh, yeah, you go with the flow and you give it your all. And uh, as I was looking up to Steph De Jong and all the guys that were competing, it was, yeah, it was just copy-paste, let's, let's compete, you know. And um yeah, that actually went pretty well. Uh, I remember doing my first World Tour event in 2002 wow. at KPWT in uh, Belgium. Yeah. Getting a, like a hyperventilation during my <laughs> heat against Christopher Tusty because he could do one-footers and stuff. And I just had the back row and the front row in my pocket. <laughs> <laughs> so it was pretty fun times. But uh, yeah, that was my first competition or actually second competition, but the first on the World Tour. Uh, and then in 2003, I actually went to uh, to Feymar to compete yeah. in the PKRA, the former uh, Professional Kite Riders Association. Um, and there I ended up, I think, seventh. And then I just knew that I wanted to do the full tour the, the year after. So all of 2003, I spent training, 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 went to Tarifa in the wintertime to, uh, to film some more tricks and, and really get in the groove. And it worked out really well uh, because I was sponsored by this uh, team and had this coach. Uh, I was able to travel the whole world in 2004, and uh, that actually uh, 
yeah, I ended up third overall on the PK. How area. old were you back then, 2004? So uh, 16. 16, so yeah. pretty young to be traveling the world, doing the world tour. That's what and, she said. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and at that time, that was when Aaron was obviously, you know, I remember there was a great rivalry between you and Aaron, but also kind of a good friendship as well. How did that kind of come about? When did you first meet him? Yeah, 100%. I mean, uh, meeting Aaron, I remember clearly at... Um, at Nordsea Open, I think it was also in 2002 or 2003. Uh, we were both little groms and uh, he was from the UK traveling with his parents in the camper van. I was there by myself with a coach and uh, yeah, we, we got along really well, you know, because we're so different personalities. We, yeah, we were able to learn a lot from each other and uh, really respect each other for, for who we are and what we do. And uh, yeah, we just became best buddies. And um, in my eyes, yeah, I've never been that competitive. I always found him a much better rider because he's a super technical always came up with new moves and yeah that just inspired me a lot to to do all these crazy handle passes and and to be amongst him in the in the finals we've written quite a few finals together actually i was always just cheering him on and just enjoying the show and yeah i always to be there rather than yeah still to, to be there around. and uh i mean i had a couple of nice tricks uh, but i was riding more for pleasure and just as powerful as i could uh, then to win it, but uh, sometimes I uh, I got the hang of it, and uh, Aaron crashed a few times, and I landed a couple bangers. So sometimes I came out on top, and that felt really good. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I'm not in it to win it. I'm just in it to enjoy it. I was going to say because it was it always seemed like I think it was around 2006, which was when we first launched the magazine. I remember we knew that we could put a video on the back of it, and the first video that we put on the back of it was actually you doing one of the first mega loops I think that had ever been filmed. And it was just the most incredible thing. And it was almost like you, you did the world tour for a few years and then you discovered this more extreme style of riding, which is what you're known for. And at that time, everyone was just jaws on the floor, like, what the hell? Where's that come yeah. from? Like, what's he doing? What stage did you kind of go, okay, I'm not into following the world tour as much as I want to do. And I'm actually just wanting to start setting myself up as like a big wind storm chaser and following that kind of path in the sport because that was quite unique back then in sort of 2006 to be doing that sort of thing I think yeah 100% I mean um, I think it's all gone pretty naturally and by just doing what feels good you come on the right path you know you can never connect the dots looking forward but always backwards so uh, yeah I just uh, did my first world tour uh, full on in 2004 got third overall I was like nah next year I'm gonna give it again bang and I got uh, actually second overall in 2005 and um, then the next year I trained really hard and then two weeks before the event started in Venezuela, I did my third kind of hammer pass on one tag and my foot slipped out of my uh, foot strap and the board went in the water and just twisted my ankle and then I was out for three months so I couldn't compete to, to become world champion or at least try and um, yeah, I just sat at home and yeah, your first injury is always the worst. You're like, damn it, my life's over, life sucks. And like, yeah. <laughs> Three months is forever. <laughs> yeah, but then after a while, you start noticing uh, that there's benefits in that injury, you know. Um, I start learning more about myself, what I'm in, in the sport for, uh, how to handle my body and mind better. And then I was like, oh, screw all these competitions. Uh, like, I don't care about points or winning. I just want to have fun and fly as high as I can. So I uh, recovered quickly. After like three months, I was able to ride full power again. And then a couple of nice storms rolled into Holland and me and my buddy just uh, started filming and uh, throwing these, yeah, these storm chase movies online. And that, uh, yeah, that got some great attention. And yeah, that was really me. That is really me, storm chaser. So uh, yeah, I think I kind of found my, my calling there due to an injury and staying yeah. at home. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny how things work out sometimes, isn't it? You're like, oh, there was a reason why my board slipped off and I broke my ankle. Whereas at the time, you're probably super gutted about it. Now you can look back at it and go, oh, yeah, that's kind of cool. Exactly. It always sets you up for something nice. When did you start, you know, you're known for doing mega loops and we'll get on to how that's progressed and talk a bit about the king of the air later. But when did you start doing tricks like that and thinking, okay, I'm going to jump as hard as I can and then I'm going to send the kite into a huge kite loop at the apex of the jump. Like, when did that kind of start for you? Obviously, I remember it clearly as it, <laughs> <laughs> as it didn't come easy. <laughs> no, I uh, think it was even in 2003 when I was with Aaron at the Norty Open event. I had this slingshot GTO kite, a really... Uh, wow, that was a beast. <laughs> yeah, a really low aspect ratio kite with small wingtips and... Yeah, I would just try and pull this thing around, but it would make the biggest kind of, and it would hit the water before me. 
But I just kept trying and kept trying, and eventually I got it around and I landed it. So I think it was yeah, 2003. That's when I kind of started building on the on the kite loops, and yeah, eventually we just uh, took them bigger and bigger, and that's how the mega loop kind of came came about. It's pretty cool to be the one of sort of I guess the Godfather is probably the wrong word because you're too young, but the kind of the founder of that whole aspect of the sport. Do you ever sort of look back and think, wow, how the hell did that happen, or did it just seem sort of organic at the time? Yeah, I think it's pretty organic. I mean, there were guys in the sport that inspired me to the match for sure, like Bertrand Fleury, um, Jeff Tobias, and all the Slingshot gang. They were already like unhooked and getting very powerful. And yeah, I think they just handed us some some nice ingredients to take to the next level for sure. You can already see now the young guys; they they're ready, you know. And I'm 30. I'm like ready to enjoy and risk reward, kind of balance it out. And uh, yeah, it's just so cool to see how hungry these young kids are and just ready to take uh, take it to the next level, you know. And uh, I think that's what we did back then, and that's what, what's happening over and over again. So are you quite happy letting the younger guys take the mantle now? Because I know that you know you still love storm chasing, you still love riding in big winds, and that's still your passion. But you sort of at that level where you're like, I don't need to push it quite so ridiculous on doing crazy moves i'm sort of happy where i'm at and the young kids can come and break themselves learning all the new stuff or are you still kind of pushing to develop it further for your own riding do you think well it's uh, absolutely epic to see these young guys take over and uh, bring this new energy into the sport because that's what we we need and um, i just learn a lot more about myself and what i like and what i want to get out of my riding and out of life and that's how you know how you're going to take risk you know of course there's tricks that i absolutely dream of uh, mega loop, unhook, and then do the biggest slim chance you can possibly do. But yeah, then the risk is huge, and it can basically end my season, and that's not worth it for me. So I will hand that over to the young guns. I will give them some quick <laughs> names, and they can go play. But uh, I like my ideas down the pub. Exactly. Like, yeah, try this. <laughs> <laughs> go send it, boys. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I'll just focus on my riding, and I know that in 50 knots, 60 knots, 70 knots even, I'm in my element, and that's what I yeah I want to do more often, and hopefully bring some young guys around, along for the trip, or maybe go storm chasing with Aaron and Lewis. That would be epic. That'd be cool. So uh, just having as much fun as I possibly can, man. And you've got into you know sort of going a little bit back to the competition side of thing. You set up the Mega Loop Challenge in Holland, and that was something that you kind of got behind and put a stamp out there for like the big European kite loop event. How did that idea come about, and how did you get into sort of running competitions and things? Yeah, I mean, Red Bull has always been a great supporter of uh, kiteboarding, and uh, I was fortunate enough to work together with them for 12 years. Uh, just ended, unfortunately, but um, <laughs> yeah, it opened up uh, a lot of new cool doors, and uh, that's wicked. But Red Bull always uh, supported me to do projects. And after winning the, the Red Bull King of the Air in 2005, yeah, that was the event that that I looked up to most, was most inspired by. And, you uh, beat Robbie in that event in Maui, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, that's it. That, that was, was good. pretty cool, beating Robbie Nash in his own backyard. I remember that. I was yeah. watching on the beach. I mean, he should have taken it, though. <laughs> Looking at his age, I should have just given it to him. <laughs> no, yeah, it would have looked good on him, that's for sure. But, um, yeah, working together with Red Bull, um, I just had the opportunity to, to organize events and uh, really create a platform for the next generation. Um, and extreme kiteboarding take that to the next level. So we had an event going on in Holland with Red Bull Holland to um, to check uh, the highest jumps. That's what Red Bull loved. And then here I came here in 2012 in Cape Town, and I was like, guys, let's do a Lente Megaloop challenge uh, because I think there's quite some riders out here that are starting to pick up the pace. So let's check where we're at. Uh, so I invited a bunch of riders, and um, I wasn't competing because it was purely for the other guys to to pick up the pace and and get this bigger mega loops going um, and that event turned out absolutely incredible great action um, and then that became the Red Bull yeah, King of the Air in 2013 King yeah. of the Air wasn't it so it kind of you, you paved the way for that to actually happen which is quite incredible yeah exactly I helped a lot with that and uh, I learned a lot from organizing the events and working together with Red Bull uh, seeing how the other riders look to it and uh, yeah I think Big Air is the most exciting discipline in the wild factor of the sport so yeah, I'm very stoked and grateful that I could have uh, paved the way for that. It's quite incredible because it is, yeah, it's, it really is the pinnacle of what I think the competition scene is. You know, you look at that event that happened you know, a few weeks ago now and there's so many people on the beach, there's so many people watching the live stream, there's so many people amped about it and wanting any information that, you know, it's just it's such a huge, um, you know, just 
monumentous on our sport, I guess, and that's quite cool that you were part of that. And a lot of people maybe don't realise that you were that ingrained in setting it all up all those years ago. Yeah, that's true. I've always been quite involved behind the scenes and uh, trying to make things happen, trying to make a lot of people happy with the sport. Uh, first of all, by watching it and then trying it out themselves. You know, I always uh, try and get people into kiting uh, by saying, hey, uh, it's like uh, getting your driver's license. You know, it's like you need a couple lessons, but then you have freedom for life when you get it, you know, and uh, you invest in your first uh, quiver and then you just, uh, yeah, you just express yourself and uh, become really happy. I guess. How, did, um, <laughs> how did the King of the Air go for you this year? I know we spoke about doing this podcast and mm. you were like, can we do it after? So I know how well I've done. And it was like, yeah, okay, rather than doing it before. How did you feel the event went for you this year? Yeah, I think the event went very well with me uh, or for me. Um, I, I was just in there to have fun. I was not really in it to win it. I was just doing what I could. The wind wasn't super strong. The waves weren't super big, but it was a beautiful display of action by all the riders and yeah, I was just enjoying every part of it, every moment. And uh, like I said, I'm not in it to win it. Otherwise, I would have trained way harder and put my balls on the line. But uh, yeah, I mean, Kevin, super athlete. He's been training all your life. He's the fittest <laughs> beast on, uh, on planet Earth. And uh, it was amazing to see him. Neil was absolutely perfect and uh, the smooth rider he is. I think he even landed some new tricks he's never been done before by himself. So I think he was, uh, he was really stoked. So. Yeah, went to the right person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's, uh, yeah, the king of the air is more of a, a showcase air style, smooth, and yeah, I think uh, he deserves it for sure. Um, and your Mega Loop Challenge event in Holland still more of a focus on Mega Loops rather than, you know, the king of the air has kind of progressed into mm -hmm. board offs and big jumps, and I think 70% of the scoring is for height, whereas your Mega Loop Challenge is more about really, really strong wins. Like, you only run it on a weekend when it's nuking, right? There's some yeah. prerequisites before you even make the phone calls. <laughs> That's it. Yeah, uh, Red Bull uh, changed the name to the Red Bull Mega Loop, uh, so the Red Bull Mega Loop Challenge is gone. I don't have much to do with it anymore, but uh, I'll probably host there if I'm around and uh, definitely check it out. But uh, yeah, this event is just focused on pure Mega Loops because, in my eyes, that's the most extreme move that you can possibly do with a kite. So when you're in a heat, uh, it's really funny because they can win with one stick Mega Loop. And I think that's what you need to focus on in like super strong wins to find this perfect gust, perfect kicker, and then just hug the most insane mega loop and wow, wow the fans and yourself uh, all along with that. So it's great to see that event happen again, hopefully in uh, this season. And in your eyes, what makes, you know, chatting to Lewis about this, but what makes a perfect mega loop for you? Like, what are you looking for if you're watching someone and saying, yes, that's a good one? Or if you're doing one, when do you know, yeah, that was a... Uh, that's a good question. I mean, every mega loop is unique and feels kind of different, and that's why I keep doing them still after 15 years of hacking them. Uh, <laughs> I still do them, and I can't stop doing them. Um, so yeah, sometimes you just have the perfect takeoff, and you just get this gust, and you just have this massive loft, and you just keep flying up, and then you can just slowly pull the kite a full circle around, and then you just get this epic yank forward. And then it's free falling a bit, and then the kite catches you, and you swing pendulum underneath it, and then it catches you again, and then you land full speed. It's just like uh, it's coming together nicely. The ultimate <laughs> feeling. Yeah, that's it. And then throwing rotations obviously is uh, is upping the feeling and the adrenaline. So I love my boogie loops, just diving forward, grabbing that nose, and then just cranking that loop, and uh, yeah, just keep going with that. And what's the worst injury you've had pulling moves like that? Because there's, there's been some horrendous crashes over the years at the King of the Air and also outside of that event and at the, the Mega Loop Challenge as well. So what's, you know, for you, have you had any really nasty ones from that? Uh, yeah, I mean, I've seen quite a few stars and almost passed out on the water for sure after a couple of nice cartwheels. Um, but yeah, I basically ride pretty safe and sound with my mega loops. They're so dialed in <laughs> it's that so it's hard good. to add on to it, hard to take away from it. But uh, yeah, it's all in my muscle memory, and uh, yeah, I ride pretty smooth. But I most of the time injure myself with handle pads and these low style, uh, low wake style maneuvers. Uh, that's when I bust my ankle or my knee. I like to just fly high and land smooth. Yeah, gives you a bit of room, doesn't it? If you're up high, you've got a bit of time to actually exactly. sort the landing out and get the kite to catch you, whereas when you're down low, it goes wrong very quickly. I mean, some of my biggest crashes must have been in the king of the air as well. Like, I missed one of my handle passes just because I didn't do them for a while. 
and I just missed the bar and just came down super hard and that yeah, bruised my ankle joint a bit so I was limping for uh, for a few weeks but uh, now it's all back to normal and uh, luckily the body is healing quickly and uh, we can enjoy where do you sit on the fence with the safety aspect of those events like are you an advocate for um, you know helmets and body vests and things like that impact vests or are you kind of like that should be your own choice whatever you want to wear whatever you want to do yeah I mean for for the events I think it's uh, we just voted for letting it be the rightest choice whether you want to wear an impact vest or, or protection um, because of course taking yourself out of your comfort zone yeah there's going to be risk so definitely protect yourself with an impact vest if you are not that comfortable yet or if you want to push it and it just protects the ribs uh, all along but in an event like that most or some riders didn't want to ride it because yeah it still restricts a little bit and you just want to be free you're not as aerodynamic and you rotate maybe a little bit different so for the event yeah i think it should be rider's choice uh looking at the past 17 years from from my own riding or the past 15 years like the extreme riding uh i barely didn't have any uh, major crashes you know like i always skip out or pull through and I don't think yeah the impact vest would have benefited me that much, but definitely for the guys that are just learning how to loop and and want to get out of their comfort zone more often to to progress, then yeah definitely wear that impact vest to save a, save a couple ribs along the way, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's a, yeah six weeks out when you break your ribs, isn't it? The ribs so, are gnarly. Yeah, yeah <laughs> breaking is fine, but bruising them like oh yeah really sore. Aaron had a mishap this this event didn't he? In mm-hmm. yeah, I mean a muscle or something like that, but. I guess if it's internal muscles, then even if he was wearing an impact vest, it might not have had any effect on it, I guess. Yeah, I mean, the pro riders should just lend their shit now. <laughs> <laughs> they shouldn't be crashing. They should be better than that. Exactly. Um, so to sort of swing around, there was a massive event in your life, um, which is being talked about a lot, but I feel I wouldn't be able to do a first podcast with you, and I'm sure we'll do a few over the years. My wife, yeah, she's yeah. up now. <laughs> but, you know, when you, when you got the news, I think you were in the US at the time, and you found out that you got cancer. So yep. what happened there? Yeah, that was uh, quite a shocker. Uh, as you think, you're young and strong, traveling athlete. Um, my wife, Nikki, she had just uh, quit her job after me nagging for years, like, stop being a lawyer, please. <laughs> <laughs> Come so, uh, out with me, travel the world. Yeah, fine. exactly. I've got plenty of work. Please, let's do this. And um, three weeks in, we traveled to, uh, to the States to head to Burning Man Festival. And uh, three days in, or three days before we went to the festival, I'm like, oh, waking, waking up in sweat and just feeling like this pressure on my chest. And I was like, oh, probably some inflammation or a cold or a fever or whatever. But let's go to the, to the hospital just to check it out before we head into the desert. And uh, they took an x-ray. And then I sat in that room. I was like, hey, what if it's something really bad? You know, I was like, that could be, I don't know. And then the door opened and the doctor, I looked him in the eye. I was like, all right, I'm in for a ride. And he's like, yeah, you got this nine by nine centimeter tumor on your heart. Nine by nine. Yeah, it was like really bigger than a, a tennis ball. And it was like pressing on my nerves and my vessels. So my head was swelling up because the blood couldn't flow, uh, flow properly. And then I was like, okay, I'm dead. I was like, okay. I screamed for like five minutes. I was like. That's crazy. Yeah, just like all kinds of uh, emotions came through. And I was like, ah, I lived 10 lives in one already. It's like, I'm good to go, you know. And then, uh, yeah, after 10 minutes, you're like, okay, survival mode kicks in. What do we have to do to fix this? And then I just went on a, on a journey to, to deal with this. And luckily, my friends uh, were connected with the Stanford Hospital. So I could go in there very quick and easy. And I was looked after by the best specialist in the world, which still took them two weeks to find out what kind of tumor we were dealing with here. Uh, it turned out, so every day in the hospital, you're like, Okay, what is it? What are we going to do? Yeah, tomorrow we know. Tomorrow we know. For two weeks, I was like, oh, shit. quite a long time to be sat in a hospital bed, obviously oh. with all the, the mental stuff that you're dealing with and the worry and the, you know, and for Nikki as well. It it's crazy. Yeah, luckily, Nikki was by my side. She, she handled it like a champ and she was like, yeah, such a good support. My dad flew right in. My brother and his, uh, his wife were in the area, so they came over. And it was really nice to have that support, but in this, yeah, at the same time, you're in the hospital. There's this guy in your room, he's dying, he's just been given up, and uh, you're like, fuck, okay, we're in it. Um, but yeah, it's also the place where you can see that it can always be worse, you know. So I like focusing on the bright side and looking at the benefits of the situation. And uh, after two weeks, they told me, okay, it's a medicinal gray zone lymphoma uh, with a Hodgkin's and a, a large B cell. 
which was a very seldom and aggressive type. So they, yeah, they blasted like 30 liters of one of the strongest chemos at it, uh, which made me lose my hair and everything. But um, yeah, it also killed the tumor, which I'm very grateful for. So did they operate or just use chemo to get rid of it? Yeah, just chemo because um, if you start cutting in aggressive uh, tumors, then little bits can sprinkle and spread around. Yeah, and. And they, they might have wanted to do radiation, but uh, after the second scan, um, everything was gone. So I didn't need radiation. Wow. And that was great. That's pretty incredible. And How I long was the chemo? Uh, the chemo was um, for six months. Every three weeks, I had to do five, five days of chemo. So then I, like the first treatment I did in Stanford, and then I was able to fly back to the Netherlands. And there I could pick up a bag every time and just walk outside the hospital with like a little meter. And then uh, I remember one time I went to Amsterdam dance event to this party where Richard Hotting was playing. I had my bag of chemo here hanging around with a little uh, pit line into my vein. I was like dancing there at six in the morning. I was like, oh, I'm doing great. Yeah, styling. Everybody was like, what the fuck do you have? It's like more drugs than you, bitch. <laughs> so, I mean, it was a, it was a roller coaster, but uh, yeah, it definitely made me feel very loved as I got a lot of support from everyone around the world and, uh, yeah, just the recovery process, rebuilding your body, rebuilding your career. It's been, it's been amazing. Yeah. How was it when you got back on the water the first time? Yeah, I remember the day clearly, like I was looking forward to get wet, but my muscles were not so strong. So I was doing a lot of yoga to get back in uh, shape. But then uh, the iForce crew were filming for chapter one here and I was like, okay, I got to write that surfboard. I mean, I look like a cook on the surfboard <laughs> because I never do it. Uh, the, the day will come though. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I remember jumping on there. Everybody was there, Aaron, Kevin, Julu, Bruna, and we just had a great time out on the water. And just, uh, I didn't have any um, eyelashes or eyebrows. So the water just goes straight into your eyes and it's so annoying, you know, it's like, it was a different sensation, but definitely uh, ignited the new love for the sport. Definitely. Yeah, and got you back on, because you came out here and you were here for the King of the Air. I yeah, remember so you yeah. were, you know, still obviously recovering and weren't yeah. competing in it, but you just got to sit and watch. And, exactly. And that was painful. That must have been tough. <laughs> <laughs> I remember being on the beach and finally they scored some epic conditions for the King of the Air, with like big waves rally and a full blasting wind. And there I was, and then I saw first Lusser crash, and I was like, oh shit, and then Lewis came falling out of the sky, and then I just, yeah, I kind of had this, um, yeah, hyperventilating from, I think, from my, from my cancer or my treatment, uh, I don't know, after the treatment, it just started hyperventilating for the first time, I was like, <laughs> it's like, terrible. And, uh, yeah, when I saw Lewis like that, that really hurt me hard. Yeah, because like, wow. you're good friends with Lewis, so, you know, that was a... Yeah. Tough one, I think, for everyone Very to tough. watch. But when you're actually there on the beach, seeing it happen and unfold, it's um, yeah, pretty horrifying. I should yeah. imagine. Definitely, and then they had to put him in a coma, but he handled it like a champ, man. And uh, he's still sending it like a boss. So. He's come out. He's funny, isn't he? he? Just sort of has the attitude. Well, I can't remember what happened, so it doesn't bother me. Yeah, no, it's you true. Know, yeah. He's just like, well, it was I'm a big saying, impact for everyone else. But everyone else is bothered by it. His <laughs> friends, and he's just like, well, I don't remember it, so it doesn't bother me at all. He thought it was two days, but it was like a week. Yeah. <laughs> so you're totally free now from the the cancer and stuff like that. So I know it's one of those things that we never you, know. Right? You get it? You never, you never know. Like we did a, an interview with Don Moore, who I think you know, who used to do Kite Surf UK magazine, mm. and he um, he got uh, malignant melanoma skin cancer and it's basically like he's been told well until you die of something else we'll never know if you mm -hmm. got rid of the cancer or not because you know you've just got to live long enough to die of something else so have you been given the all clear what's the sort of prognosis for you at the moment yeah i was uh, for the past two years i was on a um, uh, three-month checkup so every yeah, three months so they take my blood and and check it out um but now every six months i have to come back and that will be for the next two or three years but um yeah, you just never know, and there's so many people being affected by illnesses or diseases and different kind of tumors that you have going on. But it's yeah, it's just a roller coaster. You never know what's going to happen. So live every day like it's your last, and do absolutely what you feel like, and just realize your dreams. Yeah, you can never go wrong, right? Yeah, make the most of every moment. <laughs> yeah. Life short. You never know when it might suddenly get snatched away from you. That's it. How did your family react to it? Um, you know, how did they cope with it? Yeah, I mean, to call my dad and tell him I have cancer and like I woke him from his bed and I was like, Dad, I've got cancer. I just needed to cry and it must have been so painful for him to just hear, hear that his kid has got cancer and he's on the other side of the world. So he flew in the next day and yeah, was there for me along the way. And yeah, my whole family supported me, me greatly. My stepmom had to deal with breast cancer as well. 
So we kind of went through a little bump of a ride already. Um, but yeah, I think it brought everybody closer together and uh, yeah, just made everybody grow as a family and, and individuals uh, as well, I guess. Yeah, it doesn't make you realize, you know, who's close to you and who, who cares for you and stuff like that when things like that happen. I think that's quite important. Sometimes it, it's easy to forget and then you suddenly get a big reminder and you're like, yeah, family's a real key one. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, my mom, I haven't spoken to her for three years now, unfortunately, or four years. Um, she, I don't know, she couldn't really deal with it and already had like a pretty difficult past. So, yeah, not in touch with her and that hurts me deeply sometimes, but I can give it a nice space. Uh, I hope she's doing well. Uh, but yeah, she doesn't want to see me anymore, so it's kind of harsh. Yeah. <laughs> but she's mentally a bit, um, a bit disturbed, I think, and uh, yeah, I hope she, she's all right in it. I can get to hug her at some point again. <laughs> well, let's hope so. You never know. Never say never. Exactly. And you do an awful lot of traveling. Um, you know, you're on the road seemingly constantly. You know, I've rocked up and where's your next trip? I'm off to Argentina after being in South Africa. How do you find, like some people, you know, that sort of disjointed lifestyle of never really feeling settled? How do you deal with it? Yeah, that's actually pretty funny. I just nailed down my whole calendar for the year so it's back-to-back uh, -back traveling and lots of exciting projects uh, and it yeah I just make that schedule with a big smile on my face and of course there's going to be ups and downs and, and difficult times but yeah this is what I've been doing for the past 17 years and I think traveling and adventuring has been in my blood forever so to me it comes very natural to not have a stable base because I already moved houses before I was even 10 I moved 10 times already uh, I moved schools like four times and I don't know, I'm just used to making new friends, uh, being in new places, and yeah, that's when I flourish, I think, and uh, that's when I'm in my element. Do you have anywhere that you consider home? Uh, yeah, Nicky and I just rented a, a very cool apartment in uh, Scheveningen. Yeah. So we just made the move uh, to Scheveningen, the Hague, and uh, that feels like home now. So yeah, I think we're going to be spending more time there in, in the future to call it a bit more stable. Yeah. And of course here in Cape Town, South Africa. Yeah, you spend a lot of time in Cape Town, right? Yeah. So how long have you been here this trip? Uh, for the past 13 years, I've been coming here three months at a time, December, January, February, always. It's my stable time. So that's my yeah. stability if you talk yeah. about something. <laughs> yeah, you, got, you get, oh, I'm going there for three months and I'll be settled and unpacked and everything will be where I want it. Exactly. Rather than living out of a bag and jumping in and out of airports and things like that. Exactly. And this year as well, uh, partnering up with uh, Mercedes. So they uh, supply me with some awesome vehicles to uh, to shoot with. Um, and that's very comfortable, of course, traveling with the camera crew, having having some nice vehicles. And uh, yeah, just have a really cool, uh, cool tour where we're going to be visiting uh, lots of spots around Europe and uh, just hitting when the forecast is hitting. So I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to that. Nice. And have you got any video plans for things like that? Is there going to be a film out alongside it? Yeah, for sure. I don't want to start vlogging. I mean, Kev is already the master of that, and <laughs> lots of other Dutchies are, are like vlogging the shit out of it. I mean, all over the world. But uh, yeah, I mean, it, it seems like it is what people really want, like just the real stuff. But I just don't. you used to do that thing with Aaron, didn't you? That was that. Yeah, the, that show that you on the loose. Used, yeah. yeah, on the loose. But so that, that, yeah, those are more that like, was like vlogging before vlogging was a thing. You exactly. Were like, you were exactly. There before anyone really. Yeah, that, that was pretty fun. But there's some more storylines and really showing people something about the places. And I don't know. Uh, but for this year, I want to work together with a few um, top creative directors or um, DOPs that uh, can totally use all their creativity uh, and join a trip with me and then create what they want to create just to keep the diversity of the content up and, uh, and yeah, work with new people every time so we all keep learning and, uh, and sharing beautiful moments. Cool. And the other thing I was going to ask you about is you've had... You know, you got picked up by Slingshot early. You stayed with them for ages. Then you made the move when everyone did to go to best. And then that all fell apart as it did. Um, and then for three years, you've kind of been probably, you know, I have a list of maybe five kite boarders that when people ask me, like, who are the people that are movers and shakers in the industry? Like, if you, if you know mountain biking, there's a guy called Danny McCaskill. When yeah, Danny McCaskill does something, everyone stands up and watches. And I sort of always say it's like you, Hannah Whiteley, Aaron... If we get a video land on our desk, it's like, put that video up straight away because it's going to get loads of people watching it. But for three years, you didn't have a sponsor. That's like, it. How the hell does that happen? <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, it was pretty hard. Uh, was that after Best? You basically didn't pick up another sponsor after them? Is that what happened? Yeah, or? that's what happened. Like, I jumped on Best because they had new investments and new projects. Uh, I was able to develop my own kite with them. But then, uh, yeah, they mismanaged the whole whole thing. 
weren't able to pay the factories, the riders, the employees, and yeah, basically just turned into a big shit show. I uh, just won a lawsuit against them, so hopefully there's still some money to nice. get paid. <laughs> um, and yeah, then I was just looking for what do I want to do next? Am I going to make my own kite? Because I know exactly what I want, I know what I want to build. And Yeah, and you just built a kite with Best, right? So yeah, so I kind of knew experience. and had some context. But uh, yeah, it seemed like a lot of work and like the numbers were going to be that great in the beginning and it will be quite a struggle. So I was just really looking for three years, okay, who is the perfect partner for me and who do I want to commit the, the next terms to, you know? And then uh, I was testing an ozone kite um, two years ago, but then, uh, I don't know, I had it on the wrong bar, the wrong settings, didn't really take the, the proper amount of time out to test it. And uh, so that took another year, but then, yeah, ozone came to me last year and uh, we found each other again and it's like, ah, this is how the kite works. It was like, sweet. <laughs> and then I was just enjoying the C4 already in Brazil. And uh, now they just launched the, the new Amp kite, which I truly love. It's an amazing kite. Uh, and just working with the whole Ozone team. And wow, it's uh, what a feeling. It's like they're all so passionate about the sport and about especially the product, you know, that's what their, what their biggest passion is. They own their own factories. They just invest their own money very wisely and, and, and properly. And it's just uh, yeah, a big honor to be part of that team and bring some new energy in there and uh, help them with some sales and some marketing. And uh, yeah, I think we make a, make a really good team. So. Yeah, because you're not just a pro rider for them, are you? You sort of help them out with marketing. Too old for that. Yeah, yeah. Too wise. You're not just riding the kites, you're helping out with the, you know, the marketing side of it and everything else and bringing something else to the table, I guess, rather than just being a sponsored rider, which is quite cool. 100%. Yeah, I think I'm, I've got much more to offer than just being a sponsored writer and just doing some photo and video shoots. Now, behind the scenes, I'm involved in the R&D and, uh, yeah, like I said, the sales and the marketing. And really just bringing this new energy to Ozone and letting a lot of people try these kites because, yeah, they truly work well. And uh, I hope a lot of people will, uh, will progress on these kites as well. So what are you riding at the moment? The Amp? Or? Yeah, I'm riding the Amp. Uh, the Amp V1. On on four, four lines or five lines? I ride it four lines. It's a four-line uh, progressive sea kite with bridles. Um, this bridle allows you to tune it as well for um, unhooked freestyle um, and it makes the kite a bit more forgiving to just make you progress and learn uh, learn new tricks easily. And are you going to be working with them on boards? Because I know for a, you know, a long time you've been working on boards and you've had your own board range and board company. What, what Ozone just launched their own board range last year. Yeah. So is there going to be a tie up there? We're going to see Lenton Ozone boards coming out? Yeah, I mean, boards have always been really important to me. Um, that's why I've always been working on my own boards. Um, like for the for the past two years, I had my carbon one here from South Africa. Then I was working with Leo for a bit, which was amazing. Um, and then Ozone launched their own board factory and came up with some epic boards. And I grabbed the torque at 138, put it under my feet, and I was like, okay, that's, that's magic. <laughs> so that works very, very good already. And uh, I'm looking forward to uh, to keep shaping the future with them for sure. Awesome. That's really cool. Yeah, man. And you're, I mean, the, the, I guess the thing is at the moment, everyone's jumping from whoever they're sponsored with to go and ride for North. That just seems to be the news around here, certainly this season. You know, it's, oh, so-and-so's on North, so-and-so's on North. So you kind of buck that trend. Um, but you ride for Mystic as well. And Mystic is obviously owned by North Technology Group now. Yep. Are you going to be allowed to stay Mystic and ride Ozone? Or have you got any pressures from anyone to say, oh, you should be riding North or anything like that? Or is that definitely not happening? <laughs> well, uh, yeah, with Mystic, everybody was thinking that I would go to North as well, um, but no, that didn't happen, uh, and I'm super stoked to, to be a part and on my own mission. Uh, Nick and Jesse, they're rocking that, that, that world, and I think they have a very cool team around them, and partnering up with Mystic has been uh, a very smart move, I think, just to open up the distribution and have that, uh, that nice headquarters in, in Holland. I think that will speed up things for them uh, very nicely. Um, but yeah, I'm on my own program with Ozone, and uh, yeah, Mystic is obviously happy to keep me as I'm being yeah. there from the start. So you've, got the, you've been there for donkey's years, and you've got your own range of kit with Mystic, right? Yeah. So for 2019, we got some uh, very exciting stuff launching in March uh, with Mystic, the 2019 Lent 10 collection. It's going to be the, the highest range, or the most high-end range uh, at the Mystic uh, line. So yeah, I'm very grateful and uh, happy with that design as well. So uh, yeah, it's going to be cool. You're quite a busy person because I know you're super passionate about music and you DJ a lot and you DJ in some pretty big clubs and that's a big part of your life. You. You're working on equipment with kites and boards. You're working on 
accessories and your riding as well. How do you find the time to do it all? Uh, I've got a lovely wife. She's the powerhouse behind it all. <laughs> <laughs> so Nikki's doing it all. <laughs> Nikki's doing it all. That. No, no. <laughs> I, I'm working hard. She's working hard, and we are working hard. So it's uh, yeah. I think it's just uh, the thing that I'm stuck in, like very naturally. Uh, I love kite surfing. I love music. I love adventuring. So it all just blends in, and I just do what I love. And I think everybody should just do shit what they love, and don't waste your time on other stuff. Have you always had that hard work ethic where you just like been passionate about? making things happen and you know getting up in the morning and doing work yeah i think if you're if you found your passion i think getting up or doing work half of it goes automatically and uh, if you have a vision set a goal for yourself and then yeah just enjoy the journey towards there and uh, make the most of it i think yeah that comes automatically with me i think <laughs> <laughs> you want a beer <laughs> if you had to choose between kiting and music what would you choose uh definitely kiting Really? Yeah, of course. Because you can still kite with music. <laughs> <laughs> That's a fair answer for that one. And where do you think, you know, this year you've got quite a few plans and stuff like that. What's happening in Argentina when you go over there? Yeah, 100%. It's a, it's a very cool event. It's called the Kite Fest Argentina. Uh, I was invited over there last year uh, together with Jesse Richmond. We put up quite a show there. And uh, I'm going back this year to do some uh, some more demonstrations and some coaching, perhaps some judging from the national championships they have. They've got a very cool live stream going on on ESPN Argentina, so I'm sure I'll be uh, doing a bit of hosting. And uh, yeah, Nick Jacobson is coming, so my stomach's going to hurt laughing. <laughs> <laughs> Should be good fun. What's the scene like over there? Is it quite a big kite scene, or is it sort of growing? What's it like? Yeah, I mean the Argentinas are amped as ever they they want to get involved they love kiting uh, and surfing and soccer or football i should say and uh, <laughs> it's uh yeah cuesta de viento is the only spot i've seen now but that's where basically a lot of uh, cool people from the scene come together and everybody seems super stoked on the sport and even the governments and yeah it's a growing thing out there and uh, i can't wait to go back actually awesome and then what's next after that you said you've done your whole travel plan for the year already yeah <laughs> i know it <laughs> i just did it so uh, after argentina i've got the three weeks at home uh, where i'll be hopefully storm chasing if there's some around jumping in the mercedes uh, cars and uh, and heading to where the magic happens then uh, going to uh, norway for a snow kiting trip together with ozone uh, maybe join the Ragnarok, rock do one lap and then get lapped five times yeah and it's gonna be fun again <laughs> But uh, yeah, spending a week in the snow is going to be fun. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, after that, I'm going to Egypt, uh, do some demos and, uh, and DJ sets uh, for Ozone and Egypt uh, over there. For Ozone, Egypt. Um, and then what's next? Uh, then we'll be road tripping to, uh, to Spain. I'll be doing a, a private Lenten experience with some very good Italian friends there. Uh, and then heading to the Isla Canela event from the Spanish Skyboarding League. Yeah. And then I am heading to Rome for a couple of days, in, uh, in May that is. Then I've got a speech to do in Holland on the 14th of May. Then I'll be basically chasing the forecast again for a couple of weeks. Yeah. Uh, then going over to Hood River um, for the AWSI uh, gathering. Yeah. Uh, maybe a quick stop in Canada. Uh, I'll squeeze in Burning Man, hopefully, probably. <laughs> <laughs> and... Um, yeah, then there's uh, the autumn storms to be chased. So I'm keeping busy. Yeah, and then we're almost on to December. Yeah, we'll visit the New, New Zealand and Australia and then come back to beautiful Cape Town. So. And you mentioned the, um, the Lenten experience there. That's, uh, you know, a sort of a fairly new venture for you. You've been doing it for a few years. What's the story behind that and what can people expect from it? Yeah, so that basically came from Nikki and I bonding our powers and... Uh, yeah, building up a, a bit of a stable income besides the unstable sponsorships, uh, I'd say. So, uh, yeah, just to be in control, uh, we uh, organizing these epic holidays uh, where we coach people to the next level. We show them the right spots at the right time. We have a private chef and really make it like a, an epic group on an epic holiday. Um, I love coaching, helping people progress. It's actually pretty easy because... With a couple of tips and tricks, with some videoing, you can really break some boundaries for these people. And yeah, the stoke is unreal, man. The, they come off the water with the biggest smile. And I mean, meeting new people is something I love always and bringing people together, connecting them. And uh, yeah, we started this last year uh, here in Cape Town and uh, we've done six so far and uh, even some private ones. So yeah, the coaching is definitely becoming a, a bigger part as well. And yeah, 
Book a lesson if you want it. Book a lesson if you want it. Or a trip. <laughs> Get involved in a Lenten experience. We'll announce a new date soon, so keep an eye on LentonExperience.com. <laughs> keep an eye on the website, ready for the new dates to go up. And you've, you know, we've talked about your travelling, and you've travelled extensively, and you're seemingly always on the road. Is there anywhere that you haven't been yet that you really want to go to? Oh, yeah, there's been many places where I haven't gone. Uh, I've only gone to the beach, and uh, where it's windy, and maybe the clubs. <laughs> But uh, yeah, I'm not that much of a, of a tourist anyway. Everything remarkable is on Google Maps out or on Google Images, I'd say. So check it out there. Take a little tour if you really care. <laughs> I just like uh, good vibes with good people, hanging with the locals. Uh, there's definitely a few spots where I'd love to go, like Madagascar, uh, Greenland, um, Socotra Island off the coast of Yemen. There's an okay. incredible, incredible island where there's a unique uh, species of flora and fauna nowhere else to be found in the world. Like 300 of them so um, yeah I will keep on exploring and, uh, and having good times with good people keep on adventuring that's it <laughs> awesome Ruben that's been fantastic to catch up what's up with you what, well, are you what am I doing I'm busy fixing my ankle that's what I'm doing right. <laughs> how long uh, it's been six months okay looking I've good got another three to go okay so it was a pretty bad break it involved foot going on backwards and oh, shit. yeah, everything, all ligaments, tendons, and all bones, Bang. all completely gone. So yeah, three days in hospital, mountain biking in the Alps. Cool. So my life has been put on hold whilst I fix that. But it's been good uh -huh. because I've been more positive around work. That's you know, it. Suddenly the you can't surf, you can't mountain bike, you can't do all these things, you've got all this extra time. So uh -huh. we've just been working super hard, getting these podcasts out, things like that. So actually, this is the first time ever I'll go back to the UK on Thursday, just after you, and I've got no plans. Oh wow! So yeah. how good is that? Yeah, it's really bizarre. Normally, like you, it's like oh, so I go there and I go there and I'm doing this and doing that, and it's like let's yeah, freedom yeah. ring. Yeah, I'm you'll be guided on the right path. I'll see what happens. So yeah, so we'll see what happens when we get That's there. That's good. Everyone is always at the right time at the right place. So yeah, it'll work. Out. Keep enjoying. Something will come along. Exactly. Awesome, Ruben. Nice space, bro. Thank you very much for that. Appreciate it. That was fantastic. There we have it. Season two, episode one, in the bag. I hope you enjoyed that one. I really did enjoy listening back to it i actually recorded it way back in february and didn't listen to it until a few weeks ago and when i listened to it i suddenly remembered how much i enjoy putting these podcasts together and i hope that comes across for you i know some of the feedback that i had in the past was that these are enjoyable conversations to listen to so if i enjoyed listening back to it i hope you really did too i'm going to get to work on the next one uh, which is going to be with a gentleman called Ralph Groschel, who is the kite designer for Duotone Kiteboarding. And that's another interesting chat about where kiteboarding design is at at this stage um, with an incredibly talented man. So, Ruben Lenson's done and dusted. Ralph is up next. I'm not sure when it will be released. I'm about to jump on a plane to Morocco. Um, I have edited the podcast, I just need to do the intro, so I'll try and get that one done perhaps while I'm away, and you never know, it might be out soon. Anyway, have a fantastic week, and until next time, you've been listening to Rue Chater and the Intriguing Beings podcast. <laughs>